Section 43 of the United States. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The World Story, Volume 13. The United States. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 43. The Privateers of 1812. By Willis J. Abbott. The declaration of war had hardly been made public when the hundreds of shipyards from Maine to Savannah resounded with the blows of hammers and the grating of saws as the shipwrights worked, busily refitting old vessels or building new ones, destined to cruise against the commerce of John Bull. All sorts of vessels were employed in the service. The Atlantic and Gulf coasts fairly swarmed with small pilot boats, mounting one long gun amidships, and carrying crews of twenty to forty men. These little craft made rapid sallies into the waters of the Gulf Stream, in search of British West Indiamen homeward bound. Other privateers were huge three-masters, carrying heavy batteries, and able to outsail any of the enemy's ships on leaving port for a long cruise these vessels would carry enormous crews so that captured vessels might be manned and sent home after a successful cruise such a privateer returned to port seldom bringing more than one-fifth of the crew with which she had set out but the favorite rig for a privateer was that of the topsail schooner such a rig as the enterprise carried during the war with france the famous shipyards of baltimore turned out scores of clean-cut clipper-built schooners with long low hulls and raking masts which straightway took to the ocean on privateering cruises the armament of these vessels generally consisted of six to ten cannonades and one long pivot gun going by the pet name of long tom mounted amidships the crew was usually a choice assortment of cutthroats and seafaring vagabonds of all classes ready enough to fight if plunder was to be gained but equally ready to surrender if only honour was to be gained by fighting yet history records a few actions in which the privateersmen showed a steadiness and courage worthy of seamen of the regular service. One of the first things to attract the attention of the reader in the dingy files of some newspaper of 1812 to 1815 is the grotesque names under which many of the privateers sailed the grandiloquent style of the regular navy vanishes, and in its place we find homely names, such as Jack's Favorite, Lovely Lass, Rowboat, Saucy Jack, or True-Blooded Yankee. Some names are clearly political allusions, as The Orders in Council and The Fair Trade. The Black Joke, The Shark, and the anaconda must have had a grim significance for the luckless merchantmen who fell a prey to the vessels bearing these names bunker hill and divided we fall though odd names to sail under seemed to bring luck to the two vessels which were very successful in their cruises 
United We Stand was a luckless craft, however, taking only one prize, while the achievements of the full-blooded Yankee and the sine qua non were equally limited. Of the poor sailor certainly little was to be expected, and it is with no surprise that we find she captured only one prize. Among the most successful privateers was the Rossi of Baltimore, commanded by the revolutionary veteran Captain Barney, who left her finally to assume command of the American naval forces of Chesapeake Bay. She was a clipper-built schooner carrying fourteen guns and a crew of one hundred and twenty men. The destruction wrought by this one cruiser was enormous. In a ninety days' cruise she captured, sunk, or otherwise destroyed British property to the amount of a million and a half dollars, and took two hundred and seventeen prisoners. All this was not done without some hard fighting. One prize, his Britannic Majesty's packet ship, Princess Amelia, was armed with nine-pounders and made a gallant defense before surrendering. Several men were killed, and the Rossi suffered the loss of her first lieutenant. The prisoners taken by the Rossi were exchanged for Americans captured by the British. With the first body of prisoners thus exchanged, Barney sent a cool note to the British commander at New Brunswick, assuring him that before long a second batch of his captured countrymen should be sent in. Perhaps the foremost of all the fighting privateers was the General Armstrong of New York, a schooner mounting eight long lines and one long twenty-four on a pivot. She had a crew of ninety men, and was commanded on her first cruise by Captain Guy R. Champlin. This vessel was one of the first to get to sea, and had cruised for several months with fair success, when in March 1813 she gave chase to a sail off the Surinam River on the coast of South America. The stranger seemed to evince no great desire to escape and the privateer soon gained sufficiently to discover that the supposed merchantman was a British sloop of war, whose long row of open ports showed that she carried twenty-seven guns. Champlin and his men found this a more ugly customer than they had expected, but it was too late to retreat, and to surrender was out of the question. So, calling the people to the guns, Champlin took his ship into action with a steadiness that no old naval captain could have exceeded. Close quarters and quick work was the word passed along the gun-deck, and the Armstrong was brought alongside her antagonist at a distance of half-pistol-shot. For nearly an hour the two vessels exchanged rapid broadsides, but though the american gunners were the better marksmen the heavy build of the sloop of war enabled her to stand against broadsides which would have cut the privateer to pieces captain champlin was hit in the shoulder early in the action but kept his station until the fever of his wound forced him to retire to his cabin 
However, he still continued to direct the course of the action, and, seeing that the tide of battle was surely going against him, he ordered the crew to get out the sweeps and pull away from the enemy, whose rigging was too badly cut up to enable her to give chase. This was quickly done, and the General Armstrong, though badly injured, and with her decks covered with dead and dying men, escaped leaving her more powerful adversary to repair damages and make the best of her way home captain champlin on his arrival at new york was the hero of the hour for a privateer to have held out for an hour against a man-of-war was thought a feat worthy of praise from all classes of men the merchants of the city tendered the gallant captain a dinner and the stockholders in his vessel presented him with a costly sword but the general armstrong was destined to fight yet another battle which should far eclipse the glory of her first a new captain was to win the laurels this time for captain champlin's wound had forced him to retire and his place was filled by captain samuel c reed on the twenty sixth of september eighteen fourteen the privateer was lying at anchor in the roadstead of fayal over the land that enclosed the snug harbour on three sides waved the flag of portugal a neutral power but unfortunately one of insufficient strength to enforce the rights of neutrality while the armstrong was thus lying in the port a british squadron composed of the plantagenet seventy four the rota thirty eight and carnation eighteen hove in sight and soon swung into the harbour and dropped anchor reed watched the movements of the enemy with eager vigilance he knew well that the protection of portugal would not aid him in the least should the captain of that seventy-four choose to open fire upon the armstrong the action of the british in coming into the harbour was in itself suspicious and the american had little doubt that the safety of his vessel was in jeopardy while he was pacing the deck and weighing in his mind the probability of an assault by the british he caught sight of some unusual stir aboard the hostile ships it was night but the moon had risen and by its pale light reed saw four large barges let fall from the enemy's ships and manned by about forty men each make toward his vessel in an instant every man on the privateer was called to his post that there was to be an attack was now certain and the americans determined not to give up their vessel without at least a vigorous attempt to defend her reed's first act was to warp his craft under the guns of a rather dilapidated castle which was supposed to uphold the authority of portugal over the island and adjacent waters hardly had the position been gained when the foremost of the british boats came within hail and captain reed shouted boat ahoy what boat's that no response followed the hail and it was repeated with the warning answer or i shall fire into you still the british advanced without responding and reed firmly convinced that they purposed to carry his ship 
with a sudden dash, ordered his gunners to open on the boats with grape. This was done, and at the first volley the British turned and made off. Captain Reed then warped his vessel still nearer shore, and bending springs on her cable, so that her broadside might be kept always toward the enemy, he awaited a second attack. At midnight the enemy were seen advancing again, this time with fourteen barges and about five hundred men. While the flotilla was still at long range, the Americans opened fire upon them with the heavy long tom, and, as they came nearer, the full battery of long nine-pounders took up the fight. The carnage in the advancing boats was terrible, but the plucky Englishmen pushed on, meeting the privateer's fire with volleys of musketry and carronades. Despite the American fire, the British succeeded in getting under the bow and quarter of the Armstrong, and strove manfully to board, while the Americans fought no less bravely to keep them back. The attack became a furious hand-to-hand -hand battle. From behind the boarding nettings, the Americans thrust pikes and fired pistols and muskets at their assailants, who, mounted on each other's shoulders, were hacking fiercely at the nettings, which kept them from gaining the schooner's deck. The few that managed to clamber on the taffrail of the Armstrong were thrust through and through with pikes, and hurled, thus horribly impaled, into the sea. The fighting was fiercest and deadliest on the quarter, for there were most of the enemy's boats, and there Captain Reed led the defense in person. So hot was the reception met by the British at this point that they drew off in dismay, despairing of ever gaining the privateer's deck. Hardly did Reed see the enemy thus foiled on the quarter, when a chorus of British cheers from the forecastle, mingled with yells of rage, told that the enemy had succeeded in effecting a lodgment there. Calling his men about him, the gallant captain dashed forward, and was soon in the front rank of the defenders, dealing furious blows with his cutlass, and crying out, "'Come on, my lads, and we'll drive them into the sea!' The leadership of an officer was all that the sailors needed. The three lieutenants on the forecastle had been killed or disabled, else the enemy had never come aboard. With Reed to cheer them on, the sailors rallied, and with a steady advance drove the British back into their boats. The disheartened enemy did not return to the attack, but returned to their ships, leaving behind two boats captured and two sunk. Their loss in the attack was thirty-four killed and eighty-six wounded. On the privateer were two killed and seven wounded. But the attack was not to end here. Reed was too old a sailor to expect that the British, chagrined as they were by two repulses, were likely to leave the privateer in peace. He well knew that the withdrawal of the barges meant not an abandonment, but merely a short discontinuance of the attack. Accordingly, he gave his crew scarcely time to rest before he set them to work, getting the schooner in trim for another battle. The wounded were carried below, and the decks cleared of splinters and wreckage. 
the boarding nettings were patched up and hung again in place long tom had been knocked off his carriage by a carronade shot and had to be remounted but all was done quickly and by morning the vessel was ready for whatever might be in store for her the third assault was made soon after daybreak evidently the enemy despaired of his ability to conquer the privateersmen in a hand-to-hand -hand battle for this time he moved the brig carnation up within range and opened fire upon the schooner the man-of-war could fire nine guns at a broadside while the schooner could reply with but seven but long tom proved the salvation of the privateer the heavy twenty-four pound shots from this gun did so much damage upon the hull of the brig that she was forced to draw out of the action leaving the victory for the third time with the americans but now captain reed decided that it was folly to longer continue the conflict the overwhelming force of the enemy made any thought of ultimate escape folly it only remained for the british to move the seventy-four plantagenet into action to seal the doom of the yankee privateer the gallant defence already made by the americans had cost the british nearly three hundred men in killed and wounded and reed now determined to destroy his vessel and escape to the shore the great pivot-gun was accordingly pointed down the main hatch and two heavy shots sent crashing through the bottom then applying the torch to make certain the work of destruction the privateersmen left the ship giving three cheers for the gallant general armstrong as a burst of flame and a roar told that the flames had reached her magazine this gallant action won loud plaudits for captain reed when the news reached the united states certainly no vessel of the regular navy was ever more bravely or skilfully defended than was the general armstrong but besides the credit won for the american arms reed had unknowingly done his country a memorable service the three vessels that attacked him were bound to the gulf of mexico to assist in the attack upon new orleans the havoc reed had wrought among their crews and the damage he inflicted upon the carnation so delayed the new orleans expedition that general jackson was able to gather those motley troops that fought so well on the plains of chalmette had it not been for the plucky fight of the lads of the general armstrong the british forces would have reached new orleans ten days earlier and pakenham's expedition might have ended very differently a narrative of the exploits of and service done by the american sailors in the war of eighteen twelve would be incomplete if it said nothing of the sufferings of that great body of tars who spent the greater part of the war season confined in british prisons several thousand of these were thrown into confinement before the war broke out because they refused to serve against their country in british ships others were prisoners of war no exact statistics as to the number of americans thus imprisoned have ever been made public 
but the records of one great prison, that at Dartmoor, show that when the war closed, six thousand American seamen were imprisoned there, twenty-five hundred of whom had been detained from long before the opening of the war on account of their refusal to join the ranks of the enemy. As I write, there lies before me a quaint little book put out anonymously in 1815, and purporting to be the Journal of a Young Man Captured by the British. Its author, a young surgeon of Salem named Waterhouse, shipped on a Salem privateer, and was captured early in the war. His experience with British prisons and transport ships was long, and against his jailers he brings shocking charges of brutality, cruelty, and negligence. The Yankee seamen who were captured during the war were first consigned to receiving prisons at the British naval stations in America. Sometimes these places of temporary detention were moldering hulks moored in bays or rivers, sometimes huge sheds hastily put together, and in which the prisoners were kept only by the unceasing vigilance of armed guards. The prison at Halifax Wright's Waterhouse, erected solely for the safekeeping of prisoners of war, resembles a horse stable with stalls or stanchions for keeping the cattle from each other. It is to a contrivance of this sort that they attach the cords that support those canvas bags or cradles called hammocks. Four tiers of these hanging nests were made to hang, one above the other, between these stalls or stanchions. The general hum and confused noise from almost every hammock was at first very distressing. Some would be lamenting their hard fate at being shut up like negro slaves in a guinea ship, or like fowls in a hen-coop, for no crime, but for fighting the battles of their country. Others, late at night, were relating their adventures to a new prisoner. Others, lamenting their aberrations from rectitude and disobedience to parents and headstrong willfulness that drove them to sea contrary to their parents' wish while others of the younger class were sobbing out their lamentations at the thoughts of what their mothers and sisters suffered after knowing of their imprisonment. Not unfrequently the whole night was spent in this way, and when, about daybreak, the weary prisoner fell into a doze, he was waked from his slumber by the grinding noise of the locks and the unbarring of the doors, with the cry of, "'Turn out!' all out, when each man took down his hammock, and lashed it up and slung it on his back, and was ready to answer to the roll-call of the turnkey. From prisons such as this, the prisoners were conveyed in droves to England, in the holds of men-of-war and transports. Poorly fed, worse housed, and suffering for lack of air and room, their agony on the voyage was terrible. When they were allowed a few hours' time on deck, they were sure to arouse the anger of the officers by turbulent conduct or imprudent retorts. One morning, as the general and captain of the Regulus transport were walking as usual on the quarter-deck, 
one of our yankee boys passed along the galley with his kid of burgoo he rested it on the hatchway while he adjusted the rope ladder to descend with his swill the thing attracted the attention of the general who asked the man how many of his comrades ate of that quantity for their breakfast six sir said the man but it is fit food only for hogs this answer affronted the captain who asked the man in an angry tone what part of america he came from near to bunker hill sir if you ever heard of that place was the answer on another occasion a yankee and a slightly wounded british marine got into a dispute and came to blows the british captain saw the occurrence and accused the american of cowardice in striking a wounded man i am no coward sir said the yankee i was captain of a gun on board the constitution when she captured the guerriere and afterward when she took the java had i been a coward i should not have been there on one occasion the prisoners on the transport crown prince lying in the river medway took an uncontrollable dislike to the commander of a second transport lying close alongside their spite was gratified quickly and with great effect the rations served out to the luckless captives of that time consisted of fish and cold potatoes the latter edible being of rather poor quality the prisoners reserved for missiles and the obnoxious officer could not pace his quarter-deck without being made a mark for a shower of potatoes vainly did he threaten to call up his marines and respond with powder and lead the americans were not to be kept down and for some days the harassed officer hardly dared to show himself upon deck the place of final detention for most of the prisoners taken in the war with america was dartmoor prison a rambling collection of huge frame buildings surrounded by double walls of wood the number of prisoners confined there and the length of time which many of them had spent within its walls gave this place many of the characteristics of a small state with rulers and officials of its own one of the strangest characters of the prison was King Dick, a gigantic negro, who ruled over the five or six hundred prisoners. He is six feet five inches in height, said one of the prisoners, and proportionally large. This black Hercules commands respect, and his subjects tremble in his presence. He goes the rounds every day and visits every berth to see if they are all kept clean. When he goes the rounds, he puts on a large bearskin cap and carries in his hand a huge club. If any of his men are dirty, drunken, or grossly negligent, he threatens them with a beating, and if they are saucy, they are sure to receive one. They have several times conspired against him and attempted to dethrone him, but he has always conquered the rebels. One night several attacked him while asleep in his hammock. He sprang up and seized the smallest by his feet and thumped another with him. 
the poor negro who has thus been made a beetle of was carried the next day to the hospital sadly bruised and provokingly laughed at king dick to further uphold his dignity as a monarch had his private chaplain who followed his royal master about and on sundays preached rude but vigorous sermons to his majesty's court on weekdays the court was far from being a dignified gathering king dick was a famous athlete and in the cockloft over which he reigned was to be seen fine boxing and fencing gambling too was not ruled out of the royal lists of amusements and the cries of the players mingled with the singing of the negroes and the sounds of the musical instruments upon which they played made that section of the prison a veritable pandemonium but although some few incidents occurred to brighten momentarily the dull monotony of the prisoner's lot the life of these unfortunate men while thus imprisoned was miserable and hateful to them months passed and even years but there seemed to be no hope for release at last came the news of the declaration of peace how great then was the rejoicing thoughts of home of friends and kindred flooded the minds of all and even strong men whom the hardships of prison life had not broken down seemed to give way all at once to tears of joy but the delays of official action red tape and the sluggishness of travel in that day kept the poor fellows pent up for months after the treaty of peace had been announced to them nor were they to escape without suffering yet more severely at the hands of their jailers three months had passed since peace had been declared and the long delay so irritated the prisoners that they chafed under prison restraint and showed evidences of a mutinous spirit the guards to whom was entrusted the difficult task of keeping in subjection six thousand impatient and desperate men grew nervous fearing that at any moment the horde of prisoners would rise and sweep away all before them an outbreak was imminent and the prisoners were like a magazine of gunpowder needing but a spark of provocation to explode on april sixth eighteen fifteen matters reached a crisis the soldiers losing all presence of mind fired on the defenceless americans killing five men and wounding thirty-four thus the last bloodshed in the war of eighteen twelve was the blood of unarmed prisoners but the massacre, horrible and inexcusable as it was, had the effect of hastening the release of the survivors, and soon the last of the captives was on his way home. End of section 43 This recording is in the public domain.